discovered uh, this weekend. After camp, Emily and I went back to my mom's house and we crashed on, on Saturday because that's what a plane does when it runs out of fuel. Um, so we just kind of passed out there and stayed there for a day. And uh, out behind my mama's house, a little bit to the left, there was a 200-year-old oak tree. Um, it had been there for a long time, 200 years. That's why it's a 200-year-old oak. Um, and it was kind of a landmark. Well, I walked in, and my mom was just all teary-eyed and stuff. And I said, what's wrong, Mom? And she said, well, so-and-so bought the lot that the oak is on, and he's cutting it down. And she was really, really, really sad. And, you know, maybe this makes me a, just a, a, a cold-hearted somebody i don't know but i looked at her i said mama it's a tree um, and she said i know but it's been there a long time and i said i, I understand that and I, I imagine she has a lot of memories tied up in it well the next day you know she was standing at the back the back lot or the back door looking out the back lot with with margaret and i said well hey baby what are you doing she said uh Mar margaret look outside see tree cut down and they're outside, you know, cutting the tree down, and Mama's pointing, and they're talking about it. And I said, well, you seem to feel better. And she said, well, I found out something. Uh, back during the hurricane, it was damaged, and the entire inside of the tree was rotted. It wasn't nearly as stable and alive as I thought it was, that it could have come down any minute. It just looked like it was healthy, and it would have kept lasting. Uh, that, that's very much what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, in Revelation chapter 8, that we're going to be talking about uh, several things that we as human beings tend to think are stable and almost look at them as immortal or eternal. Things that predated us, things that we tend to think are going to outlast us, but do we understand that stable things are only stable because God, because God wills them to be so? Lasting things only last because God wills them to do so. That there is one person in all of the universe that is truly stable. And that's God Himself. Everything else is contingent upon Him and dependent upon Him for its existence and persistence. That's the first thing I wanted to, to do was to, to tell you where we're going. The second thing I wanted to point out is this big giant word that I printed on top of my handout that some of y'all might could even see that from way back there. It's this big giant word that says grace. And I put that on top of my handout today to remind myself, or top of my notes, you don't have it on yours, to remind myself that even while I'm preaching this, and y'all, this is ultimately a passage about the judgment of God. The one that we're going to read today. But why do we know that judgment is coming? Because of grace. Because God decided to warn us. Because God decided to tell us it was coming. Because God wanted to give us an opportunity to escape it. That all the way through the Bible, anytime you see judgment and you are tempted to think, Oh my goodness, God is just this wrathful, mean God who pours out His anger on people doing things He doesn't like. That's, first off, that's a very bad characterization of God. It's not just things He doesn't like. It's things that are actually objectively evil and that are bad and bad for us. 
But second, God warns us when judgment is coming. That's why we know we have an opportunity to avoid it. And that's why, according to Romans, the wrath is warranted when it finally gets here. Because if the wrath of God ever gets here and finds you its object, it's because we have not listened to the warnings that God has given us along the way so that we might escape it. That God's grace always precedes His wrath. And so even in a passage that's all about judgment, I want us to leave today talking and thinking about God's grace and how much He loved us and how much He gave us a way to escape judgment more than I want us to see, wow, look at all the judgment that God poured out on, on, on the world. Does that make sense? That I don't want us to focus solely on the wrath and totally miss the grace and the promises and the offerings of God. Okay? So now that we're in Revelation chapter 8, we're going to read verses 7 through 13. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we'll read that passage and then we'll, we'll get into trying to, to make something of it. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Father, I pray that we would look at your judgment and we would see your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you as our stability and our hope and our promise this morning and help us to trust in you rather than things that are passing away. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I named this morning's sermon Taken for Granted because all of the things that ultimately are damaged or pass away in the blowing of these first four trumpets of judgment are things that we would normally think of as being profoundly stable that we take them for granted, almost kind of like the 200-year-old oak, that it's been out there your entire life, and you probably imagine that it's going to be there for the entirety of your children's lives and maybe their children's lives, but all of a sudden, a storm comes out of nowhere and, and knocks it out like that. That There's very little in the universe that's stable. In fact, there's only one person that's stable, and that's God, and everything else is contingent and dependent on Him. The three uh, unstable things that we're going to talk about this morning are the earth, the economy, and the universe. Uh, now, we're, we're going to kind of jump around there because those are the things that are covered by these trumpets. Now, what are these trumpets, and who are these angels, and, and what's going on? Well... This got set up last week. We'll give a quick recap. In, verse, or in chapter 8, when Jesus opens the seventh seal on this scroll that we've been looking at since way back several chapters ago, this scroll is the title deed uh, to planet Earth. It's the inheritance of everything that humanity was supposed to be 
Ever since Genesis, when we were created, Jesus has unsealed this title deed. He's taken possession of it with the breaking of the seventh seal. There's nothing holding it closed anymore. Um, He's in full possession of it. At the time Jesus opens this seventh seal, two things happen. Last week we talked about the silence that takes place in heaven for a half an hour um, so that God can give His undivided attention to the prayers of His children. And then along with the silence that takes place in heaven, seven angels are given trumpets. Now, not much happens with those angels and those trumpets in 8 verses 1 through 6. They're kind of standing in the background with you knowing they're there and they have their trumpets, which clearly means that they're going to play them. But they don't do that until God is done hearing the prayers of His children in that that 30 minutes. But when that 30 minutes is over, when that half hour is over, the first angel that was given this trumpet begins to sound it. And these trumpets are trumpets of judgment. The very first one shows us that the earth is not ultimately stable. Look at verse 7. It says, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, now that we're getting into this portion of the book of Revelation, things are going to become looking a lot more fantastical. Okay? Um, let me go ahead and lay this groundwork. I'm sure you'll hear me say this once every two or three weeks as we continue to go through this book. Just because something sounds fantastical does not mean it is not literal. Okay? Some things in Revelation are very clearly literal. Some things are figurative. We have to do our best to make sure that we take the literal as the literal and the figurative as the figurative. And sometimes things may blur that line a little bit. This is one of them. When it says hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, does that mean that there is literal blood falling from the sky? Does that mean that there are red storm clouds because there are parts in the Bible where it says the moon is turned to blood? Right? Okay. But sometimes what that means is that the moon appears blood red. That the moon doesn't literally become blood. So does that mean that the storm clouds look blood red, Uh, does that mean that there is resultant blood on the earth that is shed by the the hail and the storm? Here's my big 50 cent theological answer. I don't know. I don't know if there's blood falling from the sky. I don't know if John just means that the clouds are red. I don't know if he means that there is resultant blood on the earth because of this storm. That's not the point of this passage. The point is not for us to figure out exactly what it was that John saw. Nor is the point that we need to be mathematically precise and, you know, if there's one tree more or one tree fewer than an exact third, we don't need to... Oh, well, John lied. He said it was a third of the trees that were burned up. Not the point. Um, also, all the grass doesn't seem to be burned up, even though John says all the grass was burned up. If you look in Revelation chapter 9, the angels are instructed not to harm the green, the, or the, the, not angels, but these angelic beings. Doesn't necessarily mean they're good guys. Um, all demons are, or bad angels. Um, they're instructed not to harm the grass of the field. Well, wait a minute. I thought all the grass was burned up in chapter 8. 
What John is trying to communicate is not that we need to, we need to play bean counter with trees and grass. What John is communicating is that this, this, this hailstorm, this hail and firestorm, is so destructive to planet Earth that it completely throws off all the vegetation. It destroys you know, all these, you know, the, 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 save a, the save a tree. Not that I'm saying that. I mean, we do need to take care of our environment, y'all. That, that, that's one of the first jobs that God gave us in Genesis. Is he puts us in the garden, says, this is how I did it. Here's the rest of the world. Make that out there look like this. That's your job as humans. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Make it look like this. But y'all, ultimately what John says is that for all of the effort to steward the earth and take care of it, when God judges it, a third of all the trees on the planet, gone, burned up. The vast majority of the grass, gone, burned up. Can you imagine the smoke? The quality of the air? The absolute and utter destruction that earth would almost look to be unlivable. And this is trumpet one. There are seven. And at the end of trumpet four, the angel says you haven't even gotten to the bad ones yet. That the earth is ultimately not stable, but we tend to think of it as such. We think of the, the seasons just chugging on and things are just going to be this way. That summer's going to come, it's going to be hot. Fall's going to come, it's going to cool down. Then winter's going to come and it's going to be cold unless you live in Georgia, in which case it's just an extension of fall. And then spring comes back and things are going to be warm unless you live in Georgia, in which case it's summer early. Um, you know, that things just kind of roll this way. That it was that way before you got here. It's going to be that way after you get here. And it's stable. The blowing of this trumpet reminds you, no. It's only stable because God says so. That trees only grow and last because God says so. That plants only grow because God says so. The earth is not ultimately stable. 1 Peter <clears throat> 1 verses 22 through 24a says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever, because... And then I put dot, 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 right? You're like, wait a minute, Josh, what does that have to do with what we're talking about with stability right now? Well, the reason that I cut off it because is because Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, is exactly what Peter quotes next. So rather than just the abbreviated quote, I gave you the whole Isaiah 46 through 8, where the prophet says, The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass, wither, the grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That God is stable. When we think of grass and we think of flowers, now y'all, these, these flowers are, are neat. 
Because when we're done with these flowers, you know where we're going to put them back up? We got a closet we put these bad boys in. When you smell them, they smell like plastic. Because they are. They're not real flowers. But anytime we put it, they're beautiful though. But when people put real flowers up here, we immediately have to figure out when the service is over, where are they going to go? Who are they going to go live with for the short time that they're going to remain beautiful? Because you know what happens to, to real flowers? They wither, don't they? That you can put plant food in them, you can water them. Man, they smell great until they don't. Right? They're, they're going to reach a point where they wither, where, they're fade, where they fade. That, that one day they were so beautiful. Eventually they reach a point where they die and they're gone. And it's a very short time, isn't it? It's a very short time. Y'all, we as humans, we think of our lives as really long. Until we don't. Yeah, being at camp this week was a sobering experience for me because that story about Sid that I told you, in my brain, she's still that little eight, nine-year-old kid running around camp as a camper, but she's not anymore. Then I'm not that 22, 23-year-old counselor anymore. That life progresses. Life moves on. Years go by. And it's easy for us as people to think we go on forever until one day we open our eyes and we look in the mirror and we say, where is, where is that young strapping man that I was 24 hours ago? And you realize that it was 50 years ago. That life goes by, doesn't it? We're like grass. We think of ourselves as having these long lifespans that we have so much time in front of us. And what Scripture reminds us is that all flesh is as grass. That we're here today and tomorrow we're gone. We're like the flower of the field. That when you look at the first trumpet judgment and you look at the stability of earth, that it lasts, it persists, and in an instant, it's wiped away by the judgment of God. If God can do that to the actual grass, can't He do that to flesh, which is just like grass? Yes. So let me beg you to take what Peter said and take it seriously. That grass is born of what kind of seed? Corruptible or incorruptible? Corruptible. It's going to die. Trees, corruptible or incorruptible? People, corruptible or incorruptible? Corruptible. We grow, we live, we die. But Peter says there's a way that you can be born of incorruptible seed. That you can be born of the Word of God. That you can be born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. Through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. <clears throat> that the same Word that can wipe out the trees and the grass can be the Word that keeps you alive and living forevermore. All it takes 
is going to Jesus and saying, have God have mercy on me, a sinner. Show me your grace. You've warned me about the coming judgment. Forgive me now. Judge me in Christ on the cross so that I don't have to be judged later. Forgive me now. Save me now. Let me be born of incorruptible seed today so that I don't have to fear judgment falling on me like this. So the earth is not ultimately stable. Second, I want us to look at the economy. Now, y'all are probably like, Josh, this is not all that uh, astounding to say that the economy is not stable. Uh, It it generally, believe it or not, it generally is. Over the long term, it's kind of, you know, it might have bumps here and it might have dips there. But over the long term, it stays remarkably stable. Um, If you listen to the radio a lot, particularly if you listen to any talk radio, eventually you'll hear an ad like this. Over the years, as the economy has gone up and down, gold has been an amazing store of value. Do you have gold in your retirement today? Safeguard your savings. And they, and they say, you know, buy gold because gold is stable. The econ- you know, this, there is always a stable part of the economy. Well, maybe not. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> and the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, let's talk about this for a minute. John does not say a mountain was thrown into the sea. He says something like a great mountain was burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Again, same exercise. The goal of Revelation is not for us to do our research and figure out what the burning mountain thrown into the sea was. If it was important for us to know exactly what it was, God would have spent the time to tell us exactly what it was. But what God God through John actually spends time telling us is what happened as a result of it. Again, the, the blood. Does the sea literally become blood? Well, God's done that before, hasn't He? Think back to Exodus. Right? He turned the water to blood. Um, does He do that now? Not sure. Maybe the fa- maybe the sea turns to blood because a large num- a large amount of marine life dies when this happens. Well, you might have a reason to believe that. The scripture just says a third of the creatures in the sea died. Maybe it's that. Regardless, y'all, a third of the sea being blood is not good. I mean, some seventy five percent of planet Earth is water. Might be more than that. I'm not a marine biologist, but it's it's a lot. I mean, so there there are even documentaries about Earth called Blue Planet because of how much of the Earth is blue because it's the sea. A third of that becoming blood, either supernaturally or due to the fact that marine life has died and the ocean is now full of its blood, is not good. And on top of that, a third of the ships were destroyed. What do you think a third of all ocean commerce being wiped out like that 
Not just what's on the ships, but the ships themselves. A third of it wiped out instantly. As well as a third of the ocean becoming blood. That would instantly throw the world economy into turmoil, would it not? Let's look at the third trumpet. It's very similar to the second. A third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. That Wormwood is is interesting. We actually know of a plant called Wormwood right now or a substance called Wormwood. It's very bitter. Uh, as it is, which John tells us that the water becomes bitter. But wormwood, as we know it now, uh, in the commentaries I was reading mentioned, hey, we, we, we know what wormwood is now, but wormwood as we know it today is not poisonous. It would not kill you. It just tastes disgusting. <clears throat> but throughout Scripture, wormwood is in bitterness are used um, to communicate judgment of God. Lamentations 3.15, this is not on your handout, says he's filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. Wormwood's used twice in the book of Jeremiah. You can even think back, think back to the book of Ruth. After Elimelech, Malan, and Killian died in Moab, and Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, and she brings Ruth back with her, and all the ladies in the town see her come back in, they say, is this Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means what? Bitter. And why does she say, call me Mara? Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. That, now that was not true, but she attributed the death of her husband and sons to the judgment of God, and she characterized that judgment of God as bitterness. That this is a common biblical picture. So this is not literal wormwood the way we know it now. This might share a bitter characteristic with it, but it makes a third of the water's fresh water supply bitter and noxious to the degree that it kills people who drink it. So a third of the sea has now become blood, or bloodied at the very least. A third of the world's ocean commerce has been wiped out instantly. And a third of the world's fresh water supply is now undrinkable. <coughs> what is now the most valuable commodity on planet Earth? water. Do you know there are, there are already countries that fight over water today? There are already places that fight over water today. That water supply is massively important. That if you're going to settle somewhere and somewhere is going to develop, it's not going to develop unless there is a reasonably priced, accessible, consistent supply of water. And there are some places that are barely making ends meet on water right now. We, we conserve it. We recycle it. Imagine if instantly, overnight, a third of the world's fresh supply of drinking water was gone. The economy is in shambles, everybody. You're no longer concerned about whether or not you can produce an iPhone. 
You're no longer concerned about the price of oil. You're no longer concerned about how much a gallon of milk is. You're concerned about whether or not you have water to drink. Y'all, we take for granted when you walk into the kitchen, unless I know some of y'all, there have been some well pump issues lately. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Um, that'll, uh, uh, Miss Karen, when your well pump goes out, you're concerned about your water, aren't you? Water instantly becomes, when, when it goes out, water is instantly the number one issue, isn't it? You're not worried about anything else. That these are things that we take for granted. We take for granted being able to, 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 to go to the store and that there's going to be food on the shelf. You know how that food ends up on the shelf? Water. If not water here, water somewhere. And then it was shipped here. Some of it by boat. Well, a third of that's gone. How many places in the world do you think depend on fishing? When's the last time you ate some shrimp? Last time you ate some fish? Well, a third of them are gone. And the ones that weren't killed by, by the impact of whatever this burning mountain is that weren't killed by it, do you think that some of them are going to die by being in bloody, disgusting water? I hate to tell you, it doesn't matter if you invested in gold, it doesn't matter if you invested in real estate, it doesn't matter what you're invested in. The economy has never bottomed out like it's going to bottom out then. Luke 12, 19 through 21 warns us against trusting in our ability to provide for ourselves and, and weather the storm. It's the parable of this rich fool who plants a field and he has a bumper crop and he has so much that he brings in that his silos can't even hold it. And so he says he's going to tear down his silos and he's going to build bigger silos. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Fool in the Bible is not just a, <clears throat> a passing insult. Fool has a very specific meaning. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That the fool, biblically, is someone who denies and rejects the revealed truth of God uh, to him. That he does not pay attention to God. He does not pay attention to the things of God. He does not factor God into the equation of how he ought to live his life. So he looks at the economy. He looks at his prosperity. He looks at what he has stored up. And he says, I'm good. Nothing that could happen would be severe enough that what I have saved up will not, be, will not allow me to get through it. And God says, oh, you fool. You can't save up enough to escape the judgment of God. You can't save up enough to weather the storm of the judgment of God. Now, is Jesus telling this parable to be mean? No! He's telling it as a warning. <clears throat> because Jesus is full of grace. 
This Jesus wants to warn us. Don't trust in what you can store up on this earth. Don't trust in the economy of this earth. Don't think that you can save up enough that you can weather any storm because there's one you can't. That one day you're going to have your soul demanded of you and you will stand before God and what you've saved up on this earth is not legal tender in heaven. Proverbs 11.4 says riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Where do you go to get righteousness? Jesus. You go to Jesus. His righteousness is enough for you. When you call out and you confess your sin to Him and say, God... I've done too much. I can't do anything to make up for it. But Jesus, I believe that your death on the cross is enough for me. He will make you new and He will take away your guilt and He will give you righteousness and the guarantee that you will escape the coming wrath. But riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Nothing that you can save up or earn on the earth is going to be enough. Jesus says too in John 4, 13-14, Jesus answered this Samaritan woman who had come to the well he asks her for a drink and then Jesus answers and says to her whoever drinks of this water this water in this well is going to thirst again but whoever drinks of the water I'll give him will never thirst the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life that this trumpet as it blows is a reminder to humanity that it doesn't matter how nice your clothes are it doesn't matter how nice your phone is how nice your car are how car is how big your house is how big your houses are it doesn't matter all that stuff man somebody could cut the water off to all that and everything else you own means absolutely nothing if you can't get a drink in in 48 hours There's not a person on the planet rich enough to live through three or four days without water. You can't do it. Jesus says a relationship with me is like having a fountain springing up in you. That no matter what happens on this earth, the fountain in you will spring up to everlasting life. You don't have to fear this if you know Jesus. He has provided for you. He's warned you ahead of time in His grace that the economy is not ultimately stable. And then finally, the universe is not ultimately stable. Look at verses 12 and 13. Then the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. At this point, the disturbances go beyond the earthly realm and enter into the cosmic realm uh, that... If you look in Genesis chapter 1, this is not on your handout, but this is verses 14 through 16, if you want to make a note and go back and look. Genesis 1 gives us the account of God creating the sun, the moon, and the stars. And He doesn't just tell us what they are, He tells us what they're for. In Genesis 1, 14 through 16, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to do what? To divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. How do we divide day and night? Well, day begins when the sun comes up. 
Night begins when the sun goes down. And we know that the sun doesn't actually go up and down. Okay? Like, oh, yeah, your, your Bible's dumb. It doesn't understand the modern science that the sun actually stands still in the earth. Yes, I understand it. But nobody actually says, well, when the earth rotated on its axis so that I could see the sun this morning. No, you say the sun, goes, the sun came up. That we judge the day by when the sun comes up. We judge the night by when the sun goes down. That for thousands of years, the human race has looked to the night sky and seen constellations and seen stars. And they know that certain times of year, certain constellations appear in the night sky. Because the earth is rotating around the sun. So you can see different stars at different times of year. So much so that you can keep a calendar by them. You can know what season it is. And when you, you, you can know that, oh, when I see Ursa Major... I know that this is the time of the year that I'm in. When I see the Pleiades, I know this is where I am. When I see, you know, you, you know, cancer, the, 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 the crab, you know, I know what time of the year this is, that you can keep a calendar by them. And that's exactly what God said we would use them for when he created them in Genesis, that they're for uh, signs and seasons, for days and years. And, and throughout Scripture, God uses them not just for seasons, but for signs. Right? The sun goes dark at the crucifixion. The moon turns to blood in the great and terrible day of the Lord. That, uh, that stars at this point you see going out. <clears throat> Y'all know the, the guys are old faithful at Yellowstone? They say it's so accurate you can set your, your watch by it. Y'all, Earth's orbit and in, in the constellations and the sun and moon, are, we, we, we laugh about Old Faithful because we say you could set your watch by it, but we actually set our watch by the sun and the moon and the stars. That's actually what we set time by. That's actually what we define years by. A year is a solar year. It's the amount of time that the earth takes to go around the sun. The, the, the Jewish calendar is different from our calendar, not just because they don't have a break when Jesus was born, but also because they date months on a lunar cycle, which we don't do. So their month is a different length. Than ours is, but the same the same thing applies. They use the moon for the setting of time and the keeping of rhythm. That the earth has a rhythm, doesn't it? That you know from year to year to year that there's going to be spring, then there's going to be summer, then there's going to be fall, there's going to be winter. That we have certain seasons. That there's planting, there's harvesting, there's things like you know Easter. You know, we almost kind of treat it as a season. Christmas, we kind of treat it as a season that we, we have this understanding that there's times and rhythms of the year. And since God has created the earth, He has designed it to work that way. But all of a sudden, at the fourth trumpet, the day is, a third of the day is now dark. A third of the night is now really dark. It's different when you've got a new moon outside, isn't it? When it's not up there shining. That and no stars for a third of the night. That these are now clearly cosmic disturbances. And God is communicating to the earth everything for you is going off the rails. The most stable thing that I put 
in the firmaments is now shaken. Things are not the same anymore. That this might seem patently ridiculous to some people and make no scientific sense, but God warned in 2 Peter 3, verses 3-6, through knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That the sun's go- Have you ever had somebody encourage you by saying the sun will come up tomorrow? What happens when it doesn't? What happens when the sun doesn't come up tomorrow? That that's the scoffer's, that's the scoffer's statement is that, hey, y'all, it's going to be better in the morning. The sun will come up tomorrow. It's going to keep going the same way it always has. And Peter says, but it's not. This they willfully forget, willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. That Peter said they forget, the scoffers forget, that the only reason the celestial lights and the earth remain is because God's word holds it in place. If God's word can hold it in place, God's word can shatter it like that. But again, am I telling you about the judgment of God to scare you? No. Neither is John. He's telling you about the judgment of God to warn you and remind you of God's grace. That this is yet another opportunity for you to know what will happen if we do not turn. Now it will happen eventually anyway, but whether or not we are affected by it. has to do with what you do with Jesus. Listen to Daniel 12.3, talking about this exact same time, actually. He says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Folks who know Jesus, do you know what's going to shine when the sun and the moon and the stars go out? Jesus will. And you know what else will? You will, because you'll be like Him. Scripturally, scripture actually says in Matthew 13, 14, or 13, 43, this is what Jesus says. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you know why I'm not afraid of the sun going out and the moon going out and the stars going out? Do you know why I'm not afraid of darkness? Because Jesus promised me because of the relationship I have with Him one day, He will be my light and I will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father. That I don't have to be afraid of darkness because He Himself is my light. That you can know today that you do not have to fear the coming darkness. That God has warned you ahead of time. God has shown you His grace and said that everything you need has been provided to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He can give you righteousness. He can give you peace. He can give you the promise that it doesn't matter how unstable the earth is, the economy is, or the heavens are. That you can have the guarantee of eternal everlasting life with Jesus. Do you want it? Because you can have it. God's grace has paved the way for me. That Mark and Joyce are about to lead us in a couple verses.
of an invitation hymn. And this is an opportunity for you to take advantage of the grace of God right now. Because while I may not know literally how these things come about, I can tell you that they come about. I can tell you that there will come a day where the earth is rent in two and the vegetation and the, the, the economy and everything on this planet is basically ruined. I can tell you that there will come a day when the sun, the moon, and the stars go out and the rhythms and the seasons and the days and the months and the years are thrown out of whack. I can tell you that day is coming, but I can also tell you there's a way that you can escape the fear of it. That you can know Jesus today and have the promise that you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. That God's grace has made that available to you. Now, if you've got questions about how that grace can be yours, how you can know the Lord Jesus Christ and be safe no matter what, then this is your opportunity. I want you to come and talk to me. Um, I'm not going to shove a microphone in your face. I'm not going to make you uncomfortable. I'm not going to make you talk in front of the church. Um, just say, hey, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I need to know, I need to know Christ. If, that, if it scares you to walk down the aisle, there's no shame in that. Fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin. Um, put that in the offering plate when it comes by and we'll follow up with you. Also, stay with the members. Don't forget that you can put prayer requests on that tear-off and put it in the offering plate, too. And we'll pray about them on Sunday night. And if you miss both of those, catch me at the back door. That God's grace isn't over just because the, the sermon's over. You can catch me back there, and I'll, I'll be glad to set up a time to pray with you. Even this afternoon, if that's what you need. So I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father... Thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity that you gave us.